Today, we are going to talk about something really important that we often put to the side or dread discussing, which is our financial wellness. Now, before you hit pause or skip, don't worry, it's not going to be scary. We're going to think of talking about finances and getting them in order as a means of self-love, how it can create less anxiety, more agency, and feeling like a relief that you have control over your financial freedom and your future. I couldn't think of a better person to have on the show than the fiscal feminist herself, Kimberly Davis. You are going to love this conversation with her. So let's dive in. Not only did she write the book, The Fiscal Feminist, she also has the podcast by the same name. She has 25 years of financial, legal, and corporate experience. She is also managing director and partner at the Bonson Group, and she is the mother of three lovely daughters. And so she is here to talk to you about women and their financial wellness. And I want to just personally share why I wanted to have her on the show, which is that I went to the Choice Media Summit in Tennessee in April, and I I didn't have any expectation that I would get a financial schooling while I was there. But I was sitting in the audience and Kimberly came up to speak, and she was such a powerhouse and such a wealth of information and so inspiring that I immediately knew that I wanted to have her on this show. So I'm so delighted, Kimberly, that you are here today. Well, Nadine, thank you so much for having me today. I am really thrilled to be here and to speak to your audience. I really enjoyed the Choice Summit. I thought it was an unbelievable experience of loads of motivated women, you know, getting together to kind of uh, learn things together. And I had the opportunity to meet you. So I'm here now and I'm just thrilled to be able to collaborate with you on your podcast. Yeah, I think the thing that really struck me was your vulnerability and being willing to share your story of your own financial journey that you've gone on. And so when people think of a managing director and partner at a private wealth management firm, you know, they assume that maybe it's been smooth sailing financially forever and ever. <laughs> but this was not, <laughs> I know. This was not the case for you. So can you tell us a little bit about your financial journey? Yes. I graduated from law school. It always been my desire to be a lawyer. I am an only child and I come from Pittsburgh, not a lot of money. So maybe I just watched too much that girl in the late seventies with um, Marla Thomas, but I really wanted to move to New York and then I wanted to be a lawyer. So that was my trajectory, right? Go to Georgetown, get the law degree, blah, blah, blah. And I did all of that. In the eighties, I was a lawyer. There were it wasn't a ton of women lawyers back then, but we were around and I was super excited. I thought, you know, I could conquer all and that I was going to have this amazing career. And I just expected it all to be very linear, which it was not. What happened was I eventually segued out of corporate law, which I became a corporate securities lawyer on Wall Street. And then I became an investment banker. And along the way, I met my first husband, who was also a corporate lawyer, who then also became an investment banker. And we then had three children, Alice and Clara Merrill. They're all in their late 20s and early 30s now. So, 
you can do the math. <laughs> so the thing is, there were some mistakes that I made along the way that I hadn't anticipated when I was a young gal of 25, feeling pretty confident at my job on Wall Street. As is often the case, I took on the primary caregiving of the children. And my ex-husband was asked to move to England. They were starting a private equity group there, and they asked him if he would go for two years. I agreed after a lot of hemming and hawing. I wanted at some point to go back to my own career because I had worked really, really hard to get the chops that I had, and I enjoyed what I did. But I also was in this transitory period with these young children. So we went, and 30-some years later, he still lives there. I lived there for 14 years. This was a mistake of staying there and not pushing to come back on the agreed timeline. That decision had a huge ripple effect throughout my life. I did do other things when I was in London. As my kids were going to school, I started a fashion company. I realized from that experience that I love clothing, but I don't like to make clothing and manufacture it and be on a deadline to, to send a lot of clothes out every couple of months. But that was a good learning experience for me because it was extremely entrepreneurial. I literally built something from my kitchen table. And before I knew it, I had four or five employees. I was sending clothes and producing clothes. I was manufacturing them. A lot of the lessons I learned in that experience benefit me today in helping other people. You know, what was really happening in London for me is that I was not self-realizing. Mm. I wasn't self-realizing my, my dream, my goal. After all that work that I had done as a lawyer, it just all seemed to like fritter away. Mm. And I got a job after I closed down the fashion business and licked my wounds. And I was married now for probably 15 years and I start just getting this sinking feeling like, where am I going? What, what am I going to do in this life? When my kids go to college or leave, I'm going to be here in London. I won't have really pursued what I wanted. So I decided I needed to move. I needed to get out of there. And the marriage was already cratering. I knew that he wasn't going to move. So I said, look, I don't want to live here forever. This was not my choice. I want to go back to the United States. My older daughter was about to go to Georgetown, so she was coming back to the United States anyway. So we moved, and the agreement was sort of like, we're going to rub along until our youngest gets out of high school. Then we'll probably split ways, and he'll stay in England, and I'll stay there, and we'll get divorced, and it'll all be amicable. He'll set me up, and so on and so forth. Well, that didn't happen. So I moved here in August of 2009. And, you know, he was going to come and visit every you know, six, seven, eight weeks. But in February, like not six months later, I get a phone call saying, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I don't love you at all. And I want a divorce. And I was like, oh, my God, like here I am living in California with my kids and I don't have a job. What am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? I didn't have any money because immediately after he and I got on, off the phone, I then didn't have access to any of the bank accounts because he changed all the passwords. And I had like the money that I had in my American bank account, but that was it. And he wasn't picking up the phone and he wasn't communicating. It was just a nightmare. And I was petrified. So eventually I did hire this lawyer. My dad lent me some money and then we got an interim court order against him that meant he had to pay me a certain amount of money until the entire trial took place and was resolved. So number two mistake, commingled all of our money from day one. Me, a corporate lawyer, didn't know what all the accounts were that he had, didn't know all the passwords. 
so busy taking care of the children that I kind of let the ball drop on this, which was very, 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 very much to my detriment. In April of 2011, we got the first divorce decree. It was a lump sum settlement with alimony. So it was kind of half and half. It was really child support and alimony. I still had children in high school, one in college. And I thought, okay, great. You know, we've got this in order now. I can look for a job. And now I'm a 54-year-old person who hasn't lived in the United States for a long time, has worked, but not worked in the United States in that way. So things were very okay for about six months. Six months seems to be the magic number in my life. (laughs) So April was a decree. October comes around. I get this email from my solicitor in London. He then said that he could no longer pay the alimony and that he was going to go back to court to revise the alimony so that he virtually didn't have to pay me anything. I had started looking for a job, but again, it wasn't like everyone was clamoring to hire me, Right. right? So I was very stressed out about money. I was leaning on credit cards because I had to keep paying the legal bills for the new court case. And occasionally I had to go to London. And this whole thing took another three years to resolve. I thought, if I don't get a job like immediately, because we need health insurance, I need to get cash flow coming in here. And I need to start rebuilding my life because this thing is consuming me. So one day I was like, okay, I'm so tired of living in fear. I am going to just throw it up to the universe. I think I probably submitted over a hundred applications for all sorts of jobs. I went to an executive recruiter and then she suggested that I try to be an executive assistant to somebody, but then she wanted to take me to take all my legal background off. Like I'd never gone to law school or been a lawyer. Mm. And when I walked out of her office that day, that was the day that I think I hit just rock bottom. Mm. Some of the greatest accomplishments that I made, they are asking me to remove this from my resume. What am I? What was my purpose here? I have now have these three kids and they're considering they're doing pretty well, but I have nothing to show now from myself. And I was so low. I remember going into the parking lot and just sitting in my car and crying, just bawling my eyes out and thinking, where do I go from this? And I went home and I went back on Indeed and I was like, I am not going to do that. I am going to find something that uses my skills and uses my knowledge and uses my background I'm going to call anyone on LinkedIn who will listen to me and apply, apply, apply. And that's what I did. And I got an interview at Morgan Stanley. I passed all the tests and then I got the job and that opened up my whole life. But when I started at Morgan Stanley, I wasn't making very much money. They hired me on the same day they hired a younger guy than me and he got paid $10,000 more than I did. Mm. Just FYI. Mm. But I didn't have a lot of bargaining power. So I took the job and the job wasn't paying me tons, but I was getting health insurance and I was literally, you know, living paycheck to paycheck for probably a good year and a half. And 2014 finally arrived. I've been at Morgan Stanley now for 10 months, 11 months at that point. And court case comes down in in London and the judge was not sympathetic to me at all. He ruled against me and what they, he was willing to give me per year for these three kids was $20,000 a year. And that didn't even cover a half of a tuition, you know, I had no more money left for legal fees or fighting with him. But more importantly, I didn't even know who this person was anymore. Mm -hmm. And the bitterness and angst that I felt towards him had consumed me so much that it ate me from the inside out. And I remember thinking, you know, I had three kids with this guy. I built a life. We had a beautiful home in London. And all of this is now gone, but 
this is the end. Mm-hmm. This is the end now. I'm going to go back to California and I'm never looking back at this again. So that was what happened, which set the stage. I then became a financial advisor. I was asked to interview with a group in Newport at Morgan Stanley called the Bonson Group. At the time we were at Morgan Stanley, joined David Bonson and another partner of mine now. We eventually left Morgan Stanley a few years later and we started our own independent advisory group called the Bonson Group. We now have 50 employees and it translated into success. And then in the middle of it, you know, a few years later, as I'm doing well, and I'm now a managing director and partner, I was just like, you know what? I want to start a platform where I speak to women so that they don't make some of the, I mean, the mistakes that I made were really not very smart, but they're the mistakes that most people do make because we're all human. And I don't want women to make the same mistakes that I do. And so I want to, believe it or not, I got married again, but (laughs) completely different situation, definitely a prenup. (laughs) And I thought this is urgent. Women, no one's talking to them anymore. I feel like we've kind of gone a little bit backwards with talking to women about their financial situation, about their careers, about intentionality, about micro and macro advocacy in their lives. So that's what motivated me to do it. The story could have ended very badly. It's now 11 years later. I'm in my mid 60s. I'm going to have to work for a long time to make up for all the stuff that I didn't get and the fact that I had this great divorce and Luckily, I love my job and I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel quite optimistic and young and energetic and I'm happy to be self-realizing now, but everybody has their own journey. And I think I needed to go through all of that so I could impart all the different parts of what I did wrong to people because it wasn't just being busy and not keeping track of all the accounts. It was also like, I wasn't intentional with my career. We didn't have any conversations about money. I mean, if we had had conversations about money and our money personalities that I often talk about, I don't think we would have gotten married. Mm, Yeah. Well, but I didn't know any of that then. Right. It was 1987. It's all hindsight. Yeah. Well, I think what comes to me when I hear your story, the second time I hear it, it's even more riveting than the first. It's that you were so tenacious despite all of the trauma that came your way there is a fight in you that I think is in so many of us women where we get to a point where we're like, no, we're not going to do this or I have to change. And so I think when a lot of us think about money, our immediate reaction is like, whoop, like don't want to look, don't want to think it's anxiety, it's lack of knowledge, it's overwhelm. But if we could break down that wall, that's why I want to have this conversation today to really think about small intentional things that we can start to do to make those changes. Because ultimately, each of us has that self-realizing part of us. It's in there. It just needs a bit of awakening. So let's first talk about there are these different like money personalities that you talk about in the book. Why is it helpful to know what those are and how do we talk about them? Well, the first thing is, is that we all need to get a lot of anachronistic ideas out of our heads that we as women should not be talking about money with our partners, with ourselves, with anybody. Your partner should not be your plan, your financial plan. There is no Prince Charming. There's no Princess Charming. There's no Charming. You are charming. (laughs) You have to take control of your life. Even if you're married, 
you must understand what's going on. And so the first thing I have to really say to women is we must not let these old fashioned ideas that we shouldn't be talking about money because we're good girls who are nurturing and kind. And that isn't how kind nurturing women are. That needs to go away. Okay. Because before I get into these money personalities, which I'm going to do in a minute, here are the reasons why you need to talk about these things. Women are making 82 cents on the dollar. Before COVID, it was going to take us 99 years to come up to pay equity. After COVID, it's going to take us 135 years. Mm. So we're already up against it. We're making less money. Okay, there's that. We are living five years longer than our male counterparts because for whatever reason, we're healthier. This is a good thing, but it may not be a good thing if you haven't thought about your money and you aren't thinking about yours, not yours yours and your husband's, but you, because your husband could die or you could get a divorce or you may never get married. I don't know. But you may have a very long retirement with expenses that are greater than you might anticipate, especially medical expenses, long-term care expenses. Also, women take more career breaks along the way. So if you are in a relationship with somebody, you need to have discussed with them how that's going to go down if you take a breakout for caregiving of a parent or a child or whatever. Also, even when we are primary breadwinners, we still do 75% of the work in the house, which means we're usually tired, stressed, and stretched to capacity which again is another reason why if we want to be successful in our careers, we need to be able to understand our relationship with money and then anybody else that we bring into our realm, what their relationship with money is. So getting to these money personalities, most people's relationships and marriages crater because of money, like around 82%. And it's not because of the lack of money. It's about how money is spent. Mm. So there you go. The reason why people fight about that is because if you spend money differently than I do, and we disagree, then I think you don't value what I think. And that, you know, then we have kind of different value systems. So it's really important to kind of do your own analysis. What kind of relationship do I have with money? And some of them, and I'll just list them quickly because they're kind of self-explanatory, but there is the compulsive saver, the compulsive spender. There's the compulsive moneymaker. Well, there's the saver splurger. So I'm a combination of the compulsive moneymaker and the saver splurger. Then there's the indifferent to money. That's usually someone who's inherited money or has gotten money without having to really work for it. There's the gambler and there's the worrier. We all have these kind of basis of like what we think about money and how we relate to it. And for me, especially now, since I didn't get to do this for a big part of my life, making money and getting my self-esteem through building my career and being able to do things independently really is important to me. I believe in saving, but I also have a side to me when I start feeling sorry for myself, I will go out and splurge on something, usually have immediate buyer's remorse, but I do it but I know that's me. Mm -hmm. My ex-husband, he was a compulsive saver and he would literally put anything on hold to save. Like to him, he was not ever going to live in the present. It's always going to be in the future. Mm. And that's just the way he is. Like everything was about the future where he may not even ever get to it. So we always had this kind of tension between us about what kind of vacations to take, where to send the kids to school, what kind of shoes to buy for the kids. I don't know. There was always an argument about it. And so I think we do ourselves an injustice if we don't understand our own relationship with money and then understand how we're going to communicate with our partner. Just like there are the love languages, 
that whole book was written about the love languages, how we show love to each other. Some people show love by doing deeds. Some people show love by buying gifts. It just depends on who you are, but you need to understand that about your partner. So there are ways that we speak to each other about money. And there are these money languages that are related to the money personalities. So there are people who talk about money in a way like a driver. Then there are analytical ways of speaking about it. Those are the analytics. Then there are the amiables. I used to be that person where when I, especially when I wasn't working, I think I wanted to show love to people. And so the way I showed love was just giving them anything they asked for, mm-hmm. even if it was going to be detrimental to me. So there's a lot of different ways of expressing, and there's a lot written on it. I write about it in my book. I also think there are certain people who might be more compatible, but you need to understand what motivates you and what you value. And then you can have a conversation with whatever this person is in your life. If if you're going to cohabit with them, you're still going to be combining resources in some way. If you're going to marry them, for sure, you need to understand this is, you know, do you guys want children? Who's going to stay home with the children? How's that going to be resolved? And do you value the same things so that you're not down the line fighting about it? And that's why these money personalities and money languages may sound a bit airy-fairy, but they're not. This is like the real deal because it's going to make you be more introspective about how you feel about money. I never thought about how I felt about money. I just knew what I wanted to do with it. I never discussed it with anyone. I didn't think about it for myself. And in retrospect, I think if my first husband and I had really sat down before we got married and said, okay, these are the things we value. This is what I want my life to look like with how we're going to spend our money. We would have been like diametrically opposed. We would have never gotten married, Mm. which would have been a shame because I wouldn't have had my children. Or we would have had to go to some sort of therapy to come up with a game plan prior to getting married, which I highly recommend about how we're going to deal with money. Mm -hmm. So helpful. Now, let's say many of the listeners, they're like, well, I'm already married. I'm, I'm in the thick of it. Is it too late? What the heck do I do right now? What are some things that I can do to kind of take back some power or establish myself within this financial conversation? Well, that's the first thing is you cannot be in the dark about the finances of the marriage. I have a lot of clients who come in and the women honestly don't even know how much their husbands make. Mm. This is not allowed. This is like you're in a business with somebody, right? It's not only a social contract, it's a business partnership. And depending on what state you live in, it'll either be a community property state or an equitable distribution state if and when you were ever to get a divorce. And I'm hoping that most people never have to go through that because it's just a horrible experience, at least mine was. But I would say, understand everything about how much does your partner make? Is he or she contributing to a 401k? Do you know what accounts you both have? Do you understand what social security this person might be getting? Do you understand the credit? If you're commingling credit and say you have only joint credit cards, no separate credit, are you checking your credit reports to see? Because some person that you're with could be incurring a lot of debt that you don't know about that could really affect your credit as well which if you were to get divorced could be a real problem, not to mention you might not have a lot of singular credit, so it's going to make setting up on your own. So I would say be very aware of all of those things. Review the tax returns. Never sign a tax return without reading it. I did that. I am a lawyer and I did that because I was busy. 
I was kind of depressed in my marriage. And at some points I was just busy dealing with the children. I was like, whatever. Mm. No, that was a huge mistake. Look through the schedules. It'll say all the investments that there are. It will show you many, many things. There's a lot of information in the tax returns. Never sign anything that you might be responsible for without reading it. So if you know what the accounts are, you know what the tax returns say, and then get a handle on the budget. You and your partner are both stakeholders in your life. So everyone should know how much money is coming in, how much money is going out, how much money is getting invested in various things. So figure out what accounts there are. And that might take some forensic digging around or ask your partner, say, I'd really like to get involved and know what's going on. So if for some reason you got sick tomorrow and passed away, I would be on top of it for the family and for myself. This is not nefarious. This is just being a good business person and a good steward of your own life because you may end up having to rely on this money down the road with your partner having passed or whatever or being gone and you will need to understand all of this stuff and you don't want to be figuring it out when you're, you know, in your seventies. Mm -hmm. So those are some things you should do to be proactive. And then if you are in a marriage where say you started a business or something's occurred, I would say also a couple of women I've spoken to in the past year that this has happened to, they started successful businesses. So they got a post-nup to clarify how the division of assets regarding that business would go down. And that's uh, particularly important in a community property state. So there are some things that you need to do, know just to be knowledgeable because knowledge is power. The other thing I would also say is please try to have your own credit. Make sure that you have a credit card that's in your name only that you pay off and that is not a joint credit card. I would also say, even if you're down the road with this, be very intentional about commingling money. I always suggest to people, if two people are working I think the best way to do it is to have two separate bank accounts, have your income be put into your separate bank account, and then have a joint account that you both contribute to in an intentional way and say, okay, this is the amount of money I'm putting in. This is what the marital corpus is going to be. But keeping some money for yourself, keeping some credit for yourself, that will allow you to have some options if you need them. And also it'll give you some control over the way you spend your, your money. You might want to go buy a few things and not have to have a big meeting with your partner every time you want to buy something because you have your own stash of money over there. Mm -hmm. And I find that when women want to approach these conversations, while they know all this factual information, they may be a bit scared of how it's going to come off. Like why if they've been in the dark the whole time, then suddenly they're going to approach their partner and like, hey, I need to know this, this, and this. You know, it might they might be afraid that it will raise some flags or that their partner might be like, what is this all about? It, I think they're nervous about that conversation. So one of the things that I think a lot about is sometimes having like a third party, having the conversation, a financial planner with you can help because that conversation isn't coming from you necessarily. It's coming from a third party, but maybe you can shine some light on that. Right. So you can go to a financial planner and there are a lot of financial planners that that's all they do. And you just pay for the financial planning and you could frame it in that way. And you and your husband go or your partner and you go to the financial planner and he's going to ask you a whole lot of questions. And that will include for everyone to be honest about all the accounts and things that you own and what they make, because that's how the financial plan will be constructed. The other thing to do, and I think there are more and more people that go to financial therapists, mm. which get to the heart of the matter. Ah. It's just about like, hey, I'm not thinking of getting a divorce. 
I just want to be better me and more in control. I'm not a child. And I've come to the realization that I'm not a child and I should be acting like a responsible adult when it comes to money. And if you frame it in the way, like if something were to happen to you, I wouldn't know anything about anything and all the money that we've worked hard to save or build the net worth that we have could absolutely disappear because I don't know how to deal with it. So I think if you go to a financial therapist, because they do exist, and they're not dealing with coming up with a financial plan. They're talking about why it might be weird to talk about money when it shouldn't be. Because I think what people don't realize in relationships, or they tend to just write off is that we are both equal stakeholders in whatever relationship we have. Even if I choose to stay home with the children, and you are working, we are still equal stakeholders. You don't get a bigger vote because you're working. I'm working too. It's called invisible labor, and no one probably is ever going to pay me for it unless I have it set forth in a prenup so that if that were to happen down the road, I got some base compensation and it's not in the hands of a judge. But it is real work. It's in enabling you to have a happy home life and a wonderful set of children while you're working. And I'm getting kind of screwed a little bit because I'm not working and my career isn't getting developed. And if I need to go back to work later in life, I'm going to have a very hard time finding a job. So I think it allows people to speak in a safe place and gives them the tools to do that. And if your partner is amenable to going to talk to somebody about it, it will maybe help. It's like having another member on the team that's explaining why this is important. If your partner doesn't think that you should know what's going on, then to me, you need to evaluate that relationship because either that person is trying to hide stuff from you or they don't value you and your intellect and your knowledge. They, you know, they should want you to want to know about it. And I always love when, you know, I have clients and some of the husbands will say, I really want my wife to learn. I send them a book. I send them the fiscal feminist. I make sure that every meeting I have, the wife is included in it. Yeah. I have a conversation with that person. If you go to a financial advisor and the person is not speaking to you and your husband, just your husband, you need to not use that financial advisor. Mm -hmm. You know, we have some catching up to do learning about talking about money. I think it's in my book, 47% of women associate the word dread with thinking about finances, financial planning, and investing. Mm. That said, when women do invest and participate in planning, they're actually more analytical than men, and they actually get better investment results because they like planning and they are planning driven. Men are often can be market timers or kind of acting like it's gambling and they, they're much more cavalier. Women are very methodical about this stuff and they're very successful at it. Yeah. So when they do do it, they actually come out on top. I would say, you know, you can't, financial planning is a great way to go because everything will be talked about in a strategic way and then the way forward. But I also think financial therapy is really important too, because it is reiterating that both people are stakeholders and that one person is not allowed to pull rank. And, you know, just as an aside, this is why I always encourage people who are getting married, whether they're old or young, to always have a prenup. Never, prenups are not just for rich people. That's old fashioned uh, notion. Over 30% of millennials now have prenups because they have a lot of student debt and they need to clarify who is going to be responsible for that. Yeah. My daughter got married in October. She's 32 years old. She's a lawyer at a big New York City law firm. 
Her husband also does well. And no one knows exactly who's going to step back if they have children. If anyone, maybe no one will. But if someone were, there's a formula in the prenup that provides kind of a base number that that person would be compensated for, for their household work, for stepping out of the workforce. And so the formula includes, I believe it's 60% of what they would make in their income at the time they step out, what their social security contribution would have been, because you stop contributing to social security when you're not working, what your 401k contribution would have been. And then you kind of add that all up and put an inflator on it for the amount of time someone's out of the workforce. And that at least provides a base number that will automatically go to them before any settlements or distribution of property occurs. If you leave it in the hands of a judge, you don't really know how that's going to come out for you. It's some third party who doesn't know you. If you are at each other's throats down the line when this is occurring, most people don't want to be forthcoming with documentation. And so even with subpoenas, they may not produce documentation. So why not figure this all out while you're still kind of feeling good about each other and you love each other? And maybe that will prevent money actually coming in to be a problem later down the line because it's already been talked about and solved in a rational, loving way. Mm. So many good points for so many different stages. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as a financial therapist. So I love that. Yes, there is. Oh, it's amazing. And I think that we forget how it's not just about knowing what accounts are where and what's what, but there is great agency that comes with taking control of your finances. I remember the day I paid off my student loans, what a charge that was. And I've, in the last few years, have really gotten to be clear about financial goals. Our son is 10. He's going to be going to college, you know, starting a college fund a few years ago. And the more that I look into what we are investing in, how we are investing, what we want our futures to look like, I feel a sense of confidence and I feel a sense of agency that is really important and um, necessary as a woman. And, And additionally, we have to have conversations that oftentimes we don't want to have. So for example, my father passed away unexpectedly at the age of 57 in 2021. And from that experience, I learned how important it is to have all of your wishes and plans in writing. And that prompted us, my husband and I, to put together our estate plan, to talk to an estate planner, to put everything in writing about everything. And did we want to have those conversations? Did we want to think about hypotheticals? Absolutely not. It was like we would come out of the meetings just like, but at the same time, there is a great relief of, okay, here's what will happen if X, Y, Z, and we were the ones who decided that, nobody else. We have our wishes in writing. So maybe as we, we close, you can talk about, you know, any of these more towards end of life type things that we need to be thinking about now, like retirement and estate planning. Right. Let's talk about retirement. You know, obviously the sooner you can put money away in tax deferred vehicles, whether it's an IRA, 401k, Roth IRA, the better. So delaying it is going to delay the growth of it. Now, honestly, things happen in a life and I get it, you know, so I'm kind of 
doing this a little bit later in life and all the stuff I was doing earlier in life kind of got eradicated along the way, but you can never be too early with it. So for the younger people who are listening to this, even if you are, you know, putting away some money, you don't have to max out, but try to get there as much as you can because it is important, but it's also important to be saving in a taxable account as well, because some people do want to retire in their early 60s or maybe late 50s. And you don't really have to start taking distributions now from these tax deferred vehicles until you're in your 70s, 73. And those are taxed at ordinary income rates. So you, if you have like two accounts, you have your retirement tax deferred accounts, and then you have like a taxable account, that taxable account will help you bridge the amount of money that you might need until you have to start taking those RMDs. And the taxable account will be distributed at a lower tax rate because it's not ordinary income. That might be a little more technical than you wanted, but that is a very important thing to think about, to have both kinds of accounts. And to be thinking about the fact that as we get older, we are all living much longer lives. And I see this with my parents. If my 40-year-old self had had a conversation with my parents in their 60s, I would have said to them, which I've already had this conversation with my kids, what are you going to do if you need care? How are we going to pay for that? Well, I didn't have that conversation because people weren't living to 100. But my parents are, thank God, 94 and 92. But I'm in California, they're in Pittsburgh. My mom has dementia. She does know who we are, but they need a lot of care. So I have two caregivers that come every day. And the cost of the care per year for I think we have maybe 11 hours a day care. It's about $150,000. And if you're going to put somebody into a care home, I always have discussions with my clients about the fact that nobody wants to buy long-term care insurance, but the premiums have come down. They are much better than the old long-term care, but at least you can get indefinite care at a certain amount of money per month, but at least you know you have that. If you don't, you might have to take care of your 94-year-old mother or father and subsidize that. So you not only have to worry about your own retirement because- When you're going into retirement, your elderly parents may also be needing money. And unless you are good with kind of letting them on their own, you might have to take money out of your retirement. So you need to think about those things because it will affect your retirement. And retirement can be long, increased medical costs. All the plans that we run, our financial plans, always go out to 100 because it is not abnormal for people to live into their late 90s. I have a 99-year-old client who still goes to Zumba and (laughs) she's in it to win it. So you could be hanging around a long time and you need to make sure that you're not just living on social security. As far as estate planning goes, everybody who has a child under the age of 18 should have a written will, a will that says who the guardian of that child is going to be. Because if you do not do that, you're both in a crash or whatever, it will be the court that decides who the guardian is going to be. You absolutely must have that in a will. You cannot put that in a trust. So the things that you should have, whether even if you don't have gobs of money, everybody I think should have a trust because that all the assets in the trust will help you escape probate, which means you don't have to go through the whole probate court system to get the assets. It will allow you to put you know certain conditions in there as to who, how the beneficiaries receive your money and so on and so forth. I also advocate for a lot of people who have their own assets, like an inheritance or whatever, that they keep that in their own separate property trust. So say you inherited money, 
I would say you should have your own trust and then you can have the family trust with your husband. That way the separate property stays ring fenced for you and you can dispose of it as you see fit without combining it in the marital corpus. And then you need to have the directives, the powers of attorneys, medical directives, who's going to decide how, you know, whether or not the plug gets pulled. And those things are important because if you don't have that written down, it goes to the decisions of others who may not know or love you. And you don't want that to happen. Some things you can do online, but you really do need to have the documents in order because if you don't, you don't know where your kids might end up. And you also don't want all the money and all the things that you've worked really hard for to get distributed in a way that you don't want to be the case. Because if you die in test state, which means without a will or a trust, then it's going to be up to the court to decide that. I don't think most people would want that after a lifetime of putting together assets. One other thing for people who are getting married for the second time, well, you're coming into a marriage, you might have your own children, your new spouse might have their own children. If you don't have this stuff very clearly set out, then there could be a lot of confusion and acrimony down the way. So it's very important, especially for people that are going on to second and third marriages to have this very, very clear. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And if you are listening and going, holy crap, I have to do a lot of things, that's where I find that Kim's book, The Fiscal Feminist, really is helpful as a resource because you can take it step by step. And in there, there were so many helpful apps and so many helpful websites and resources. It's like you don't have to go this alone. So just know that while today we scratch the surface, there is so much more help available to you via the book, via Kim's podcast, maybe talking to a financial planner, maybe talking to a financial therapist, all of these things. And what I would most recommend to listeners is taking it bit by bit rather than getting so overwhelmed you do nothing. We hear all that we have to do, myself included, years ago. It's like I knew what I was supposed to be doing as a young married person and as a, a full-time worker or even as a new mom, like you should really have these things in place. And I would get so overwhelmed that I would just think, oh my God, I don't want to think about any of it. And really what I did is that over time, bit by bit, I like just bit off these these chunks of what I had to do and what I had to do so that now when I think about finances, now I'm able to have those bigger conversations. Now, now it doesn't bother me as much as it used to. Now it doesn't feel as overwhelming as it used to. Does it still feel a little like, ugh? Yes, but it certainly feels much more empowering than it used to. Well, to me, it's a way of expressing self-love to yourself, right? Yeah. If you care about yourself, you go get your checkups, you get your mammogram, yeah. you go to the gynecologist, you go get your heart checked. If you love yourself, whether we like it or not, money is inextricably tied up in our lives. It is part of everything. If we don't have it, then we can't live and eat and take care of ourselves and our children or anybody else for that matter. So through all the stuff that I've gone through and some really bad times with my relationship with money, where I was just so stressed out beyond belief about the fact that I didn't really know what was going on, or because I didn't have any money, I realized that taking control of this bit by bit allows me now to be CEO of my own life and to feel in control and to feel at peace. I know what I can do. I know what I can't do. And if there's anything I will say to anyone, if you do buy the book, it's The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women, I would say start with chapter five 
And that the very first thing you need to know about your life is how much money, whether it's as a family or in, on your own, do you have coming in and how much money is going out? Just start there. Just start with that very small detail. Once yeah. you know that, that's the basis of so many other things that you're going to be able to figure out. But a lot of people have no idea about any of that. They don't even know the simplest of things because they don't want to think about it. But you have to reframe it. Money will set you free if you don't let it control you and you control it. It's just a means to an end. You would not not go get a mammogram if you felt a lump. You would not do that. If you know that you don't know what's going on, if you wait too long, the diagnosis could be critical. And I would say start with just maybe having an evaluation in your own head of how you look at money and what you feel about money and how you like to spend money and contemplate that, ponder that, let that sit and then take action from there. But this is as important, in my opinion, as healthcare. Yeah. Well, you have certainly really proved how urgent this is to be thinking about, to be talking about, to be acting on. And you have so many good resources. We'll put all the links for the book and the podcast and your website in the show notes. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly, for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Wow. She is a powerhouse. <laughs> I feel like I download so much information just by listening to her. And I just love that she is honest and talking about mistakes that she's made. So you know that this advice is coming from someone who's been in every stage and every aspect of the financial journey. And if you are feeling in a place where you're not so happy about where you are, I hope that this inspired you. And if you're just kind of in this neutral territory, I hope that it also motivated you to take some control and power and agency over your finances. Doing little bits at a time can really, really help. I really want you to tell us what takeaways were most important. So let us know. Tag us on Instagram. Kim is at The Fiscal Feminist. I'm at Nadine Kenny Johnstone. Let us know what your favorite takeaways were. Another woman powerhouse, female powerhouse I love is my producer, Michelle Rado. You are incredible. And remember, everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.